Welcome to Sales in the Subscription Economy, Season 1, Episode 12. I'm Amanda Northcutt of SubscriptionCoach.com, and I am so excited because I have a dynamite guest today, Dalis Wilson, Vice President of Sales and Growth Marketing at Get Accept. Dalis has a resume about a mile long, including, but not limited to, a storied sales leadership career, avid volunteerism and mentorship, named in the Australian Top 30 Under 30 list, had the most read article on LinkedIn worldwide in 2017 and 2018, and just for the cherry on top, has appeared as a guest on The Ellen Show. Dalis, welcome to the podcast. Wow, that was quite an intro. I need to get you every time I go somewhere. <laughs> We're so excited to have you today. I know you have a lot of sales wisdom you're going to drop on us, and the audience is going to appreciate it a lot. So with that, let's start. Tell us a little bit about your sales career, where you've been, how you got to where you are now, and though I'm sure most of us are familiar, a bit about GetAccept. Yes, yeah, so sales to me started at a young age. I actually had a father in sales, and initially that led me away from the profession. But early on, I saw that sales was a meritocracy, and it didn't matter how old you were, that if you attained the results, you could move upwards in the profession. So I started in selling at the Aussie equivalent of Best Buy called Harvey Norman. And then throughout university, I took some roles and we scaled two Aussie businesses to acquisition, uh, which was an amazing thing to do and learn before 23. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to the United States and helped grow out uh, the second largest review website, Trust Radius, and then on to Get Accept today for almost three years. So it's been a, a fun, fun ride across the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Get Accept? Yeah, so in the sales process today, uh, many people have different tools uh, for video, for proposals, contracts, e-signing. What we do is aggregate all those tools into one easy to use platform. So it saves you time and money and you can appear a little different throughout the sales cycle too. So I was actually a customer for maybe one and a half years, one of the first ones. And then uh, I was lucky enough to come in house. So that's, that's rare when that can happen in your career. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And I really appreciate how Get Accept um, on your website. It's very clear what you guys do, what the value proposition is, who your customers are. Um, it's not filled with a bunch of jargon. It is, is clear and crisp. And um, I think you don't always see that in the SaaS community. So I, for one, appreciate that. Well done. Thank you. Okay, you've got to tell us why you were a guest on The Ellen Show. Yeah, so it was a bit of a crazy ride, actually. Um, we, my brother and I uh, made some YouTube videos, and on the back of that, they thought it would be funny for us to uh, appear on the show, uh, but we thought we were only going as guests, and then uh, they discovered that we had quite a fun chemistry together, so they ended up putting us on a few episodes. And um, it was really a, an amazing ride. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a contract with Warner Brothers afterwards uh, to help in production and do some also uh, TV segments. And at the time, that was great experience because that was the largest social media account in the world. Mm. And that was very helpful for my understanding of social, both for sales and marketing afterwards. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, if anyone says anything bad about Ellen, I always get upset first to defend her. 
Oh yeah. She's a phenomenal human. I love her um, Instagram account and YouTube videos and her new Instagram account. That's just for pets. <laughs> I think it's called pause up. If anybody's interested, I can link to it in the show notes, but yeah, she's an absolutely wonderful human and how cool that you got to have kind of an up close um, in-person experience with her. That's really fantastic. Thanks for sharing. All right. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Let's talk sales. Uh, what sources do you rely on right now to stay up to date on the sales and sales management profession? Yes. It's this question I always receive and it's very difficult. Uh, I think the first thing is you have to make a matrix of 10 to 15 people that you really respect and then establish uh, frequent email communication with them. Uh, so that's very important. The second thing is to have a sales mentor, regardless of your ability. So I've been focusing on this zero to 20 million scaling area for quite some time. Uh, but now I have the dream to take things from, you know, 20 to 50 or 20 to hundred. Mm-hmm. So I actually have a mentor at a large public company. Um, I, I keep that private who it is just, just for confidentiality's sake, but it's very important. Yeah. Um, And then the next thing as well with uh, books or blogs, uh, I think that it's difficult to sift through the noise, so to speak. Um, So what I've tried to do is look at the rankings on Amazon uh, every quarter. And then I pick maybe one to two books, uh, order them, and I'll skim read both. And whichever one catches my fancy, I'll uh, end up uh, proceeding with. Cool. Can we circle back around real quick to mentorship? I think that's a really, really um, pivotal part of having a successful career trajectory. Um, Obviously, no need to share who that is again, but um, how did you get connected with a sales mentor at that level? Yeah, it was very difficult. It's a bit like recruiting someone uh, because a lot of people who want to be mentors may not be the best because they're no longer in the profession and they're selling themselves. Uh, so I made a list of companies that I really respected, uh, actively went out to them on LinkedIn. And I also mentioned the fact that uh, I'm happy to pay remuneration or there could be an exchange of abilities. Uh, and uh, it, it was a long process, uh, but I was very happy with the outcome. And it's not the first time I've done this in my career. I've always paid for Uh, mentorship and continuing education from probably the age of 19 or 20. And I think uh, the investment in yourself is one of the best investments you can make. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for sharing your process with us. I mean, we all know how to do a basic outbound campaign and I like how you brought value to the table and offered a few ways for that to be exchanged. So that's really great advice because, you know, the sales VPs that I'm interviewing on the show and those who are listening, we're typically the ones doing the mentoring, but we still need mentor mentorship to um, continue to progress in our career. So I appreciate you sharing that wisdom. That's a really good point. Um, how about all time favorite business books? Oh, there's so many of them. Uh, I think that we need to learn a lot from fiction books, uh, funnily enough. So (laughs) one of my favorite books for understanding the psyche of humanity and also political systems, because if you look at companies, they're just a a kind of another construct of a political system in a way. Uh, So I've found Animal Farm to be something that's quite helpful to read and to appreciate 
some of the lighter and darker elements of the human uh, mind. So that's one fiction book. On the nonfiction side, I always give anyone who starts out in sales uh, Jeffrey Gittimer's Little, uh, Little Red Book of Sales. Mm-hmm. It's not awfully complex, but I think that's what some people need to see that there's structure and somewhat of a process. And then I like to iterate on those concepts over the one to two years that they might be in that junior role. Uh, the third one is uh, To Sell Is Human by Daniel H. Pink. That's mm. probably one of my favorite recent ones. Yeah, that is a great one. Man, Animal Farm, I haven't read that since high school, but I like that you bring fiction to the table because as salespeople, our job is storytelling on a lot of levels. And so I think that's a really interesting and unique suggestion. The Little Red Book yeah. of Selling, um, <laughs> the Little Black Book of selling your contacts or something, uh, the sales Bible all by Jeffrey Gittimer. I remember clinging to highlighting dog earring uh, pages of those books when I was about that same age in my late teens when I was really getting into sales. Uh, Great suggestions. Very cool. Anything else? We also, uh, I think we need to think about when it comes to books and reading, uh, you need to have something that enthralls you you know, to, to get up or to before bed to put that commitment into reading. It's amazing in younger demographics how, how poorly people uh, dedicate themselves to reading because now people mainly manifest content through audio like we're doing here and through video. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found that I, I listened to another podcast and it talked about even if you don't commit to reading one book a month at the minimum, if you just sit down and make the effort to read a few pages to start each day, that exercise in itself is very good in, in building positive behaviors and positive habits. And that's a real struggle for all of us and our employees to do, uh, particularly in this age where there's so many di- digital distractions and, and that can really detract from our focus and our ability to succeed. I couldn't agree more. I'm an avid reader and a huge proponent of taking the time uh, to do that and to improve yourself and be able to better contribute to whatever organization or family or social structure you're part of by um, reading other people's ideas. So that's, that's good. Thanks for expanding on that. Have you found running a sales team in a recurring revenue organization different than a traditional one-time transaction sale? Why or why not? Isn't this funny? It's a great question. Uh, I came from a B2C background first or retail first and then into B2C. So we actually sold uh, home loan products and investment products over the phone. I think that a command of building human relationships quickly comes in the B2C and retail realm. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you need two to three minutes to establish trust Uh, in a B2B cycle Trust is a more complex notion that's forged over multiple meetings and often has to do with how much they trust your company versus how much they trust you as a person. So if you're able to bring those two houses together and take the ability to build rapport rapidly from a more traditional sales model into a B2B SaaS model, I think that's the one of the golden rules, if possible, uh, for VP of sales to uh, build a program to do. Mm, that's great. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, I think as well that the best people in transactional selling uh, looked at it as a long-term process as well. 
Um, it was quite sad the other day. I had to attend the funeral virtually of uh, one of my uh, distant uncles. Mm. And um, I never got to meet him, sadly, uh, just through distance. And being in Australia, there's a lot of family around the world that I don't get to meet. But uh, someone jumped on in the eulogy and spoke about how he was an amazing car salesman and that every single person that they knew of would come back to buy from him repeatedly. And it was because he sent uh, each person a handwritten birthday and Christmas card for his whole life. And uh, I've been on tour and listened to the top sales uh, car sales person as well uh, in San Francisco. And it was a similar thing. They built a book of business around them and they added value to people's lives outside the primary function of uh, of the car or perhaps it was real estate or something else. So in this case with B2B SaaS, a lot of sellers like to add value around the specific product, but there's two lenses you can use to add further value. The first is look at the industry and uh, industry level and what are, what things are, uh, is that stakeholder going through right now that you could possibly help them with. And then on top of that, is on the personal interest level. So is there anything that they would like or they've expressed that uh, you can provide that adds value? And one example is uh, one of my accounts uh, a few years ago, uh, the gentleman was crazy about basketball. Um, So arranging to fly him out and take him to a game was extremely efficacious in building our relationship. Mm -hmm. But from a cost perspective, on a million dollar deal, it, it was nothing. So yeah. yeah, it's difficult to strike that balance. That's great. I like the, the trust building and I like how you're talking about the starting in retail and, you know, B2C kind of bridging a gap of trust and human uh, empathy into a B2B relationship. Cause if you go straight to B2B, you might miss that. Um, so I started early on in retail. Uh, also, actually, my first job when I was 16 was uh, in shoe sales. And so um, having that one-on-one interaction frequently. And I also sold uh, cars. Actually, in college, I did an internship, internship at the Sewell Lexus dealership in Dallas, Texas, and learned a lot about sales and how they view you know, the transactional sale actually as more of a recurring revenue um, deal. I mean, they're going for customers for life is their motto and they really have built their entire organization around that. So those are great um, examples. And um, I'm sorry about the loss of your uncle, but man, what a salesman. How fantastic. What a great idea uh, to go that extra mile and write two handwritten notes to each customer a year. Kudos. I I still haven't done that, but I have uh, one funny story was once I I mailed someone a shovel. Uh, We we were... (laughs) We're working in the home services space and in Australia, you can get away with a bit more. I'm not sure if you can bleep what I say, uh, if there's an expletive, but I'll, I'll, I won't say it for the listeners, but I just said, um, shovel, shovel the S word off your desk and sign this proposal. And I had the proposal under the shovel and I knew the guy running a, a very large gardening uh, franchise. He'd love it. And um, yeah, he still says that's his favorite thing he's ever been sent. So sometimes if it's not a letter, just send a shovel. Very nice, man. That's a good tactic. And that's talk about knowing your audience. That's awesome. Um, we can say shovel your shit on here. I think that's pretty great. Good call. 
Um, <laughs> all right. What changes to your projections, strategy, and sales tactics have you guys made in light of the economic challenges brought on by COVID-19? Uh, the forbidden word. I think that's, that's <laughs> one thing is uh, we want to acknowledge the times. Uh, so making sure people are okay, but you'll notice that most conversations start in a uniform manner right now where everyone talks about the current circumstances. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that at all? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And is your family well? And that's, yeah. I think it's important to ask some of those questions, but maybe if they can be infused more naturally, I recommend perhaps via email or through a pre-meeting agenda with video, which we advocate our reps to do. Uh, but the call you want to get away from that uniformity. Uh, so we've kind of said across the organization, Hey, we don't really want to talk about COVID. Um, the second thing is we want to make sure uh, internally, at least that we prioritize industries that had uh, more inelastic demand. And, and for those other listeners, it means demand that doesn't really change over time. Uh, or in light of these circumstances. So mm -hmm. that's meant pivoting the industry focus. The third is uh, doing everything we already do, but trying to do it even better. Because I think that if you look at, uh, and Jason Horwitz put out a really good um, blog, blog article recently about sales efficiency. Mm -hmm. And the firms that had the greatest sales efficiency in 2008 uh, were able to emerge and be even more successful on the other side of the curve. So I think that means that for every dollar we spend on sales and marketing, if we can put it to better use now, even if our results aren't exactly on budget, uh, it means that as we come out of this, we'll probably be in a better position than most other firms. Mm. Yes, I love that attitude too. Um, what's your best advice for sales teams competing in the subscription economy right now, given the sudden economic downturn? I mean, I like what you said about do what you do, but do it even better, focusing on inelastic industries. Anything else to build on that? Yes, I think so. Uh, from a data perspective, uh, you can do this manually, but you can also work with, say, a data scientist or a junior developer to monitor LinkedIn and look at employee growth. Um, if employee growth remains, uh, so let's say, let's take their Q1 and Q4 employee growth from last year. If that remains the same in Q2, Q3, then they're a company that should be top of your list. Um, if it falls by only a little bit, again, they should be ranked high. And then if it increases, uh, you should weight those companies even more. So for instance, some companies specialize in say remote training technology or e-learning. Those ones are the ones you have to go after now because they're actually benefiting from the circumstances. Mm. So my advice, if there's any, is to take a more data centric approach to monitoring the growth of these companies in the market. And if you can tailor your account list or target account list accordingly. I like that prospect smarter with the data and everybody should have a data scientist working for them if they don't already. 
That's great advice. All right, let's talk about cross-departmental communication. How is that handled at GetAccept? Um, for instance, how intertwined is sales with product marketing and customer success? Yes, I think uh, this has changed as our companies evolved. I think some of us uh, as early employees have more of a cross-functional disposition given that we've held roles across all all the different uh, departments. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, as we've scaled up from about 145 onwards to the 200 people mark, uh, I think what's, what's amazing about our company is we are a sales enablement platform. Uh, we're also a company built by sellers first. So sales is infused into everything that we do inherently. But I also think that we also ask the question, if we change this or make this decision, what is the impact on revenue? And that's an amazing ethos to have in every department because mm-hmm. it means you're always aiming for the same goal. I've worked with other companies though that have extremely different viewpoints and uh, a very antagonistic relationship, particularly between sales and CS and sales and marketing. Uh, If possible, these are things that you have to stamp out culturally and make each department a servant of each other. Uh, Mm. So to do that, you need to create vested interest between all the different parties that way there's a focus on collaboration and not uh, competition or worst case, you know, fighting internally. Yeah. I hate when that happens. Yeah. What an interesting concept. Make each department a servant of one another. That, nobody has said that yet. And um, man, what, talk about an ethos or a North Star to kind of go by. That's fantastic. I like that. Anything else to add on that, Dalis? Uh, I think that... Uh, Sometimes people have suggested an internal uh, boxing match to get uh, things settled. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a fan of that. I did, I did, um, I did some training for a, a charity boxing match once on a corporate level. Um, and I uh, had to pull out. I think I was slightly scared and slightly injured. But remember, guys, don't make it physical in the workplace. Uh, make sure that if, if you do feel that these departments are not working together. Uh, the best thing to do is, uh, you know, to call in all hands between leadership and, and get it out there. And it can be difficult if you're the one calling out the behavior. So I think that uh, what I'm very lucky to have is a really good relationship with our CEO. He's one of the most understanding people I've ever worked with. Uh, so I wouldn't spend three years working here and helping to scale the company if I didn't feel I could come to a person like that with anything. Uh, so again, back to Animal Farm, <laughs> is the political system at the company healthy? And it's also on you. If, if you're continuing to work somewhere and in the first one to three months, you can't tell that it's toxic. I mean, is it our, our fault for stepping in the toxic slime or or if we can feel it eroding our skin don't we have a responsibility to get out um curing the curing the toxicity is the third option and that takes a lot of strength and time so you need to pick your battles Mm. that's great that's a good point nobody's touched on that yet we're going to come back to culture uh, in a little bit but that's great that um your ceo is that approachable and sounds like um 
you know, has their hands on the wheel. And yeah, I, I will second the sage advice with the infighting, especially physical infighting that will <laughs> not ever bring a positive result about. So that's great advice, Dalis. Um, let's talk about accountability for a minute. In what ways are individual members of your sales team held accountable for the retention of their customers? For example, is their pay structured in such a way that they are incentivized to ensure renewals happen? Good point. Uh, so my biggest point, which I haven't been able to do at this company, uh, I'd like to do it again. I did it in the past is, Basically, you take an MPS score uh, 90 days in, another at 180 and also pre-renewal. And mm-hmm. you, you actually insert between 5 to 10% of the total commission amount. So say you pay someone a 50-50 split. Of that 50%, 5 to 10% should be conditional upon happiness. Mm-hmm. And that creates an investment for that salesperson to continue nurturing the relationship, being positive, adding value. It's not only on the CSM to do so. And that's something that really frustrates me. And most of the best customers we have today have come through which channel starts with our referrals. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to generate referrals if people feel a transactional model where they spoke to, one person on support chat to get info, one person as an SDR to to qualify them, one as an AE to sell them, and then now to a CSM. You need to make that process feel like one total vessel, not like cogs in a machine. Yes, streamlining communication and having really uh, nicely orchestrated handoffs is absolutely imperative uh, to a good NPS score. So that's a cool way of tracking that. I like that. Um, but I can share another story about this. Yeah. Actually. Uh, so the previous company I worked at, uh, there was no accountability. Uh, so basically we were incentivized to increase net new bookings all the time. It was always on net new bookings. Mm-hmm. And we had one person in the team who was one of the most aggressive people I've ever worked with and was extremely good at acquiring new business, but it it was at a cost to everyone. The other employees were afraid or hated them. Management found it impossible and often didn't invite the person to come into the office. And then the customers or prospects were actually intimidated of this person. They, They thought that if they didn't proceed sometimes that this person would send information to their boss or to their boss's boss. Very interesting sales tactics, uh, ones that I don't advocate. But in the end, right, the churn on this individual was so large. uh, And even when they made other career decisions and worked for other uh, companies in a similar space, not much of their business could even be ported over because the relationships were surface level or non-existent. So, I mean, I'll pick someone with a high net retention and, you know, someone who hits a hundred, 104% of quota any day versus someone who hits 160, but none of their customers end up sticking. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. What a nightmare. Talk about a toxic environment. Ugh. Yeah, got to be careful with that story too, because if I mention names and companies, I could uh, 
get a nasty letter talking of letters, but um, no kidding. Let's not do that. (laughs) I don't think I've given away anything there. Yeah. All right. How do you coach your sales team up on properly setting expectations for those recurring revenue customers, as opposed to that one-time transaction sale? Uh, It comes down to the sales methodology, right? So we'd like to use the medic method, which is very popular, but it's, it's almost like saying, uh, you know, medic's so popular, it's about as popular as putting hairspray in or brushing your hair. So mm. every, everyone thinks they're doing it correctly, but often when we see people's hairstyles, we think, oh God, that probably could use a little bit more or less, right? So with medic, we're not all doing it correctly. We just like to say the word and sound smart. Uh, but when it comes to the letter M, so metrics, uh, so so the listeners can look up medic if they don't know it already. Mm-hmm. I'm sure most of you do, but M for metrics, you need to introduce metrics on both sides. So the metrics that the buyer expects, and then the metrics that you think would, would measure success and you need to agree on those. And then that trickles down into the, the second D, which is the decision criteria. So does the criteria that they're buying the product on align with the mutual metrics that you've decide, decided? We document this in the CRM and I will be pretty aggressive just making sure that this is the case. Even if I jump in on any meetings myself, uh, I'm surprised at how many firms don't have such a structured approach. And then they're wondering why, you know, one to two months in people are unhappy or want a refund. So I think that's the, rather than any surface level advice or anecdotes, I actually think if you do that and put it in your CRM and make a policy, you'll see results. Yes. Great advice. Aligning expectations with the customer and making sure you're moving toward the same thing with the customer. I love that you guys um, enforce that and make that part of your sales process. I'm sure that makes you guys exponentially more effective. Anything else to add on that? Not right now, no. Cool. Let me know if you think of something. Okay. Uh, <laughs> are you guys currently in a hiring freeze? No. Uh, so back to my uh, previous statement, if you look at our data, it's same as before. So uh, I think we're one of the companies that people are trying to sell to, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but we've had to monitor the efficacy of each Higher, so I think we've slightly altered what hires we're making, but we still plan on bringing in the same headcount. Awesome, I'm glad to hear that. That's really encouraging. And how do you guys uh, source talent? What works? What hasn't? Any any tips you want to share with other sales VPs? Yeah, I mean, I I've. I'm generating my own podcast soon called uh, failing and scaling that we've been working on internally. And one of my biggest failures uh, has it's, it's been, it has a few elements. One is thinking that I needed to hire talent uh, locally. And I've always been a proponent of people, many people being able to drive their own learning and betterment. And I've been one of those individuals in my career at certain stages. Sometimes I find it hard to focus uh, as my team can tell you, Mm -hmm. but uh, you know, now the beauty of this current situation is the remote sales 
blueprint has become the blueprint of all organizations and we've seen how well it's working. So I think that's my first learning is San Francisco had, has an extremely strange culture to me as an outsider, even though I've worked there for four years. I'll give you a quick example and maybe the listeners will relate. I remember begging to get my first job. I remember really trying as hard as I could at every early position and trying to impress. Uh, and there wasn't a surplus of opportunities, at least in Sydney and Australia at that time. In San Francisco, it's an employee-centric market. So mm. employees will tell you, oh, why should I take this job over Google or Facebook or other people who give me better benefits? Um, why do I have to work Fridays? Why do I have to work more than five, six hours, right? This is very strange to me when there's talent in the world that wants to push hard. So that was a big uh, learning for me on the hiring front. And then another learning was, again, not listening to my gut. I think because I'm a younger sales leader, I built these teams, you know, 22, 24, 24. Uh, in this case, 25, 26 again, uh, I think, oh, maybe I don't know the right things. And I second guess myself on those instincts. And a lot of the employees that I thought wouldn't work out for us, it was because I didn't trust that, that gut instinct. But on the whole, we've been able to hire so many great people. And um, I think the reason that that has been the case is when we bring in more decision makers to create better reference points. And um, in the initial hires, as we were scaling, I probably took the meetings alone or did it too much myself. So mm. I think, again, trust your instincts, um, bring in more people to provide that assessment that's more holistic. And then don't, hire locally you know there's plenty of talent that's really good and works hard that that you can always fly in for training uh when things normalize a bit right now absolutely do you have any tips to share about how you test salespeople for cultural fit at the various organizations you've worked at yeah i think that's a whole other podcast isn't it how we do that <laughs> uh, but i really think that they need to lean in uh so you you they need to really want to work uh, for your firm, right? Um, I, I, also, I think the best analogy I give to this point is it's a bit like being in love. And a lot of people who are younger come to me and they say, DW, I'm, I'm stuck between this person and this person and I'm not sure who's right for me. And I said, when love is a choice, it's not love. When, when it's love, you just know, and that's the only thing that fills your mind. It's a beautiful feeling. So it's the same when you pick a job. You need that future employee to be in love with the company and the vision and the people. So the best way to, to test that is to infuse questions and to create a hiring process which allows you to see that. And it's, again, when you ask people, do you really want to work here? Are they going to tell you no in, in an interview? If they're a smart person, they'll just say what needs to be said, right? So instead, you need to work on finding the cues or finding the behavior patterns that tell you otherwise. And um, 
again, maybe people can reach out to me more about that because uh, I'll talk all day on that point. Yeah. Okay. So failing and scaling. Uh, do you know when your podcast is going to launch? Uh, it's close. Uh, we have a pretty poor uh, landing page. Uh, so it, we're just redesigning it again. So if you look up failing and scaling, get accept on uh, Google, you'll be able to see it. Mm, okay. I'll definitely link to that um, in the show notes. So everybody can give that a listen. We can hear further thoughts on kind of the architecture behind um, assessing for cultural fit. I'm glad you're going to do that. I'll definitely subscribe to that podcast. I'm enjoying Thank chatting you. with you. <laughs> All right. Just two more questions. What are one to three pieces of advice you give other sales VPs competing in the subscription economy? And what would you have said pre COVID-19? Uh, so the advice doesn't change for me uh, because it's still the same. Um, so the first one is uh, there'll be people you'll be told to sell to. Uh, don't listen to that. Instead, build your target accounts based on the types of people your company has really helped today. Uh, so examine your case studies and really build that target account list based on those firmographics and technographics being the same. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is you need to be different and push different at every point in the sales cycle. Uh, so at the start, when you're booking the demo, how do you take, their take them by surprise with the personalization of the content throughout the sales cycle? How are you infusing what you've listened to into developing custom experiences and sending them things that really uh, make them feel like you're the one who's invested in their success? Mm -hmm. And then at the end, don't just send them a contract, send them things to enable them to be your champion inside the organization. And then the third thing is, uh, regardless of the time period we're in now, you really need to think about how do you build your profile beyond just selling? Because if you're a VP of sales forever, that's great. But we also want to have upwards mobility in our career trajectory. Mm -hmm. So I think um, right now I'm doing more programming modules in Python and JavaScript. You know, I'm writing uh, a book on the side um, and I'm playing a bit of guitar. They're three things that, may not seem relevant to being a VP of sales, but I also think we need to invest time in being well, more well-rounded uh, business professionals and people. Uh, so those are my three points of advice. That's really great. And I think we can bring that back around full circle to pursuing mentorship. And you could even pursue a mentor outside of sales. You know, if your goal is to be the CRO, then get a CRO mentor and help you um, kind of, well, get them to help you bridge that gap. Good. Sage advice, Dalis. I appreciate it. Last question. I am a firm believer that sales makes the world go round and we have a tremendous responsibility as salespeople to get the economy moving again. How can we speed up that process? I think if we do well and meet our quotas and our teams meet their quotas, then we create more jobs. Uh, so I think that that's a, a very important point is performance will create uh, opportunities for other people. Um, I'm also a big uh, fan of the Keynesian multiplier effect. So um, basically, if you think about if you spend $1 in the economy, it becomes somewhere between $5 to $12 because 
you know, you buy that uh, a bottle of milk and then that dollar is used by the shopkeeper to buy $1 vegetables for the store and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think that right now we will want to save money, uh, but you need to think about where can I effectively spend some of my disposable in- income to make the, the biggest difference. And I think that is for all of us going to be on our local level. So what, what shops or services have been with us our entire lives that warrant, you know, uh, our expenditure and attention. Mm, that's great. Any parting thoughts, Dalis? Uh, I think if you're listening to this, you're ahead of most people because most people don't, uh, put any time into bettering themselves and these podcasts are the best and something that's changed my life in the last one to two months is getting a pair of headphones that stick in when you do running or exercise Um, and I'll I'll try and do one hour a day where I listen to a podcast and and then do exercise so if you're listening in that manner then uh, we share something in common so keep keep doing and um and listening to these amazing shows and Amanda, you're a wonderful host. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Dalis Wilson of Get Accept for his insights and advice. Check out the show notes on subscriptioncoach.com slash podcast and sign up for my email newsletter where I read, curate, and summarize the best content on subscription sales and sales team recruiting on the web every week on subscriptioncoach.com. We'll see you next time on the Sales and the Subscription Economy podcast.